Today's Bible reading comes from Ruth, chapter 3. Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good. Let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came, out, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my darling? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you all here uh, as we continue looking at the story of Ruth. It's great for you to be here for those online. Good to see you as well. Uh, Ruth chapter 3 is what we're going to be looking at today. Now, when you read any story, it's important to know how long that story goes for. Is this a story that takes place in a day, a week, a month, a year, or many years? It's important to work out how long a story goes for so you can know how long did the characters go through what they were going through. And the same applies to the book of Ruth. It's important that we work out its timeline, how long the story goes for. Because when you read the Bible, you can think, oh, we just go from chapter to chapter. Oh, it's just the next day or the next week. So Ruth is four chapters. Is that four weeks? Is that four months? Is it four years? So we've got to work out how long Ruth is because it matters because it impacts on how you view the characters, how they live out their faith in the book. So how long is the book of Ruth? Well, it begins off by starting off, well, let's go back a bit. Um, it's a book that is 10 years in the making. Right at the beginning, it talks about all these sad things that are happening. You've got famine, you've got funerals of all these husbands, and you've got the failure of God's people. They are doing as they see fit. They are not faithful to God. And it says right in the beginning, this takes about 10 years. So the story of Ruth is 10 years in the making. And then we're told that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And again, for us here in Sydney, we're like, well, what's that got to do with us? And then we jump to chapter three and we're told that there is a pile of grain. And again, what's that? But it's a clue for the reader to go, hang on, we've time for harvest and we've harvested, we've got the grain. And in between chapter one and chapter three is not, you know, 50 sentences. It's actually three months. So if you're reading Ruth, it's taken 10 years and three months to get to chapter three. It's not just three chapters. It's 10 years and three months. And the last sentence of chapter three is Naomi saying, it's going to be finalized today. Like today, this story ends and a new one begins. And so the book of Ruth is 10 years, three months, 
one day in the making. And we get to see these characters, Ruth, Naomi, live out their faith during that time. It's not just one chapter after another. No, it is faith lived out over time. It's the trust that we are reading about over time. Ten years, three months, one day in the making. Naomi and Ruth, they wait and they hope and they trust over a really long period of time. And so for us as readers of Ruth today, reading their story can help us wait, hope and trust as well. I mean, this year has felt like 10 years, three months and one day, has it? And we've been hoping for this year to just fade away. Well, as we look at Ruth chapter 3, hopefully it'll encourage us to wait and hope and trust in the Lord today. So let's pray for God's help to do that. Dear God, thank you for the story of Ruth, for Ruth and Naomi and for Boaz, for their faith and their trust. And I pray today that as we look at their story, uh, that it may encourage us to trust you as well. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Over the years, I've learned a thing or two. Uh, In kindergarten, I learned to tie my shoelaces. Uh, In my early 20s, I learned to drive a car. I also learned to play the drums. Uh, I've learned to fix the internet. So whenever my girls at home say, hey, Dad, can you fix the internet? I fix the internet, which is basically just turning it on and off again, basically, most of the time. Um, I've also learned to cook some of my mum's favourite meals. I'm very proud of that. I've finally cracked some of those Greek family secrets. So these things I've learned, but there's one thing that I am learning, and it is that little thing called trust. And I say learning, not learned, Because trust is not something that you do once and you don't have to do again. Trust is not something that you can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I trusted back in 2014. Oh, yeah, I learned to trust back in 2014. I'm good. I don't need to do it again. No, trust itself is something that we need to learn again and again and again. Trust needs to be like time. It's something that needs to be ticking over. It's something that needs to be done hourly and daily because there are times when trust is harder than others. To say Naomi and Ruth have been having a hard time is an understatement. Again, their story starts in chapter 1 in sadness, in tragedy. Uh, We've got the three Fs, famine, funerals and failure. We've got a famine. There's no food. We've got the funerals of all these husbands leaving their widowed wives. And we've got the failure of God's people doing as they see fit. So if you read the end of Judges, it's really damning of God's people. We're not going to do what you said. We're going to do what we think. So Ruth's story begins in tragedy. And then things take a a turn for the better. Ruth bumps into Boaz in chapter 2. And we can look at this moment and call it chance, coincidence, serendipity, good fortune. But the author of Ruth calls it, as it turned out. Well, there you go. As it turned out, there's Ruth. And what do you know? There's Boaz. As it turned out. Today, we're looking at chapter 3. But the thing about us as readers looking back at this story is that we know how it turns out. We know how the story ends. It's almost like a happily ever after. We know, as it turned out, we know how it turned out. But Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, they don't. And so Ruth, Naomi and Boaz, well, they're going to have to do that one little thing. They're going to have to learn to trust. And for us today, uh, I imagine many of us are waiting for this year to be over. It has been uh, difficult, to say the least. It's, in my eyes, it's been the slowest, fastest year ever. It has felt like this year has just taken forever. But on the radio, someone said, hey, four weeks to Christmas. And I went, what? This year has just dragged so slow. But at the same time, it's November. And the thing about this year is that whatever plans you and I had in January, February or March, they have just gone. And as um, John said, for many of us, COVID hasn't been the big thing for us this year. 
for many of you, it may be a dis another disappointment, uh, a diagnosis, a discouragement. And so as we come to the end of this season, I guess, and as we hold our breath for the next one, well, let us be like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Let us do that one little thing called trust. Uh, in a way, we are Ruth chapter 3 people. We know how things are going to turn out. We know we, we are waiting to see Jesus. We know where we are going, but we're kind of in between people in this stage. We are Ruth chapter 3 people called to wait, hope, and trust. Now, the thing about trust is that it doesn't mean just sitting on our hands doing nothing. Trust isn't just, oh, yeah, I, I trust God. No, trust involves making plans, making decisions, and trusting God with them. And so we are people who it is good to make plans, and we trust God with them. Can I say it is good to see the plans of your church still on the back wall? It is encouraging for me to look at those plans and that artist's uh, impression of what this place may look like. I'm not sure where your church is at with those plans, but we make plans and trust God with them. For those of you who've just finished the HSC, you're making plans. What am I going to do? Do I really want to do this? Do I want to? You make plans and you trust God with them. And the thing is, some of those decisions are made for you. Some things in life are beyond our control. And we trust God. We wait and we hope and we trust. We make plans and we see what God has in plan. Well, Naomi comes up with a plan. And boy, is it a plan. Oh, my goodness, what a plan this is. Ruth chapter 3, first four verses. This is the plan. If you've got a Bible, follow along as I read it. One day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, here we go, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Therefore, wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go uncover his feet and lie down. Lie down. He, he will tell you what to do. That's the plan. Dress up, look good, do those wings, you know, that are so popular with girls today. Maybe that'll get his attention, I don't know. That's the plan. Now, I'm going to break down the plan for us all here are the top five reasons why, on the surface, this is the craziest plan of all time. Number five, did you notice how no, uh, the mother-in-law name, she knows where Boaz is, what time he is. Today, we call that stalking, all right? Okay, we call that stalking. Number four, why this is a crazy plan is that it is incredibly provocative. In the plan, it's talking about, hey, lie down, be lying next to him. Can you hear the implications in that? When a man and a woman, when they lie down together, hint, hint, this is a very provocative plan. Number three, it is a highly inappropriate plan. It is a culturally inappropriate plan because normally it is the man who makes the first move. But not this girl. Oh, no. Oh, no. You go, girl. And so what Naomi is suggesting to Ruth is, hey, I want you to break every cultural taboo or every cultural norm and do the taboo. I want you to make the first move. <gasps> this is so culturally inappropriate. And it threatens to ruin their reputations because if they get busted, oh, we, we, we're just talking. Sure you were. Sure you were. But the number one reason why this is one of the craziest plans of all time is don't you hate it when your aunties and mothers try to set you up? I mean, they mean well, but still. Oh, the number of times my mother's kind of said, oh, nice girl, Costa, nice girl. Not this one, this one. Oh, it's very nice. Ma. Do you, 
they're the top five reasons why on the surface, it just seems the craziest, inappropriate, risky plan ever. You know what's even crazier? Is Ruth's response. Look what she says in verse five. I will do whatever you say. She gives a thumbs up to this plan. Oh my goodness. Verse six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do so. All right, how do we make sense of this plan? Okay, I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that this plan, believe it or not, is actually based on Scripture. That this plan has at its heart God's Word. Here we go. You see, God set in place many years before Ruth a system where that if a, uh, if a husband died, another close relative was obliged to marry that wife, bring her into his family so that she could be provided for. It was their social security. You couldn't go to Centrelink in those days. You couldn't get benefits. You couldn't get a widow's pension. The widow's pension was to be brought into another person's family because God doesn't want the widower on their own suffering. God wants the widower part of a family. And so on the surface, this plan to us today, it seems risky, it seems foolish. But Naomi knows her Bible. She knows God's word. And she knows, hey, this is what God said. This is the system that God set in place. This is how God calls his people to live and to care for others. She knows, hey, God, you care for the refugee and the alien and the widow. And so this plan is actually based on God's word. Now, why did Naomi, if if that's true, but why the need to dress up? Why the need to put on perfume and look your best? It's tempting to think, well, it's to tempt him. You know, dress up, get the man's attention. It's tempting to think it's about temptation. Rather, it's an acknowledgement that Ruth is moving on, that her period of mourning has come to an end you know when my father passed away when I was 15 uh, it is tradition for a Greek woman to wear black so if you ever see little Greek women it's they're still in mourning they're wearing black and my mum did that and I and she did this for years and years and years and years and then one day I remember coming home from school looking on the clothesline and she had bought herself a yellow top and I can still see it as, as, as if it happened yesterday. And for me, I was like, she's moving on. Her period of mourning is over. It's time for a new season to begin. And so Ruth, the reason why she's dressed up, doled up, putting on the perfume, maybe the wings, I don't know, is because she's saying to the world and to herself, my period of mourning has come to an end. A new season is about to begin. She is looking forward to the future. So again, on the surface, the plan, it seems risky, it seems culturally inappropriate, but at its heart, remarkably, there is God's word. And it, it's, on, it's a plan built on hope, hope for future and new season starting in Ruth's life. Okay. Now, whilst Ruth and Ermi are conjuring up this plan, dressing up, looking beautiful, Boaz is out partying with the boys. The harvest is finished. You know, they've been winnowing away. It's back-breaking work out in the sun. And they've finally got this pile of grain. And he's been eating and drinking, enjoying life. And he's going, "Um, time for bed. And he goes over and he sleeps at the foot of the grain pile. The reason why he does that is because um, he's there to protect it. So that in the middle of the night, no one can come and steal it. And that is really symbolic of the kind of guy that he is. I'm a protector. I look after the pile of grain, but I'm also looking after the guys I work with. They've broken their back for this, and I'm going to protect it. It's just indicative of his loyalty, symbolic of the kind of guy he is. Now, whilst he's asleep, Ruth sneaks up. So far, so good. She hasn't been busted. 
He then uncovers his feet. Still good. She cuddles up next to him. All good. But then there's a problem. He doesn't wake up. He doesn't wake up. Look, verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down in the middle of the night. We're talking about a few hours here. Boaz has slept probably 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock after eating and drinking. And now it's the middle of the night, midnight. And can you imagine what Ruth is thinking This was a stupid plan. I knew I shouldn't have listened to my mother-in-law. And what's worse is that when Boaz does wake up, she doesn't get the response she is hoping for. So verse 8, in the middle of the night, something startled the man. That word startled is literally trembled or to be terrified. This is... (gasps) And notice how the language has changed, that we're no longer talking about Ruth and Boaz. We're talking about in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman. So the author is saying this is not culturally right for a man and a woman to be this close in the middle of the night, separated from each other. This is not what men and women do. And so Boaz, he's scared. That is not the response Ruth was hoping for. And so the thing is, what is he going to do? How is he going to respond? How is he going to, what is he going to say? Is he going to react angrily? You know, what are you thinking, Ruth? Or is he going to act inappropriately? Oh, hey, hey, um, hey. It's just you and I. No one's, no, no one's around. You scared me at first, but hey. How will he respond? Well, as he always has, honorably. If you remember in chapter 2, Ruth, uh, Boaz says to Ruth, hey, I want you to you know, collect the, the crop behind me. Don't go over with those bunch of guys because I know what guys are like. No, I want you to follow me and I will treat you honorably. And here he treats her honorably as well. He does not take advantage of the situation. Rather, he listens to to this woman because he's got no idea who it is. Verse 9, who are you? I'm your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So Boaz has got no idea. Who are you? Mainly because he's never seen her like this. If you can make her out in the middle of the night, he's never seen her dressed up and look so beautiful. He's only ever seen her out in the field, hot and sweating, in her work clothes. But now, she looks and, dare I say, smells beautiful. That's why she doesn't know who she is. And then Ruth's response is a bold response. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Rough translation, I'm Ruth, you're my redeemer, marry me. That's what she's saying. I'm Ruth, you're my redeemer, let's do this thing, let's get married. She proposes that he propose. And that word corner, spread the corner of your garment, uh, that is literally wings. And again, if you remember in chapter 2 of Ruth, Boaz prayed, may the Lord spread his wings over you. And so she is saying to him, hey, do you remember when you said that? By the way, that's you. Now, when did, she, when did he say that to her? In chapter 2 or in real time? Three months ago. So she has been holding on to what he said three months ago. I'm not sure if you're the kind of person who just waits by the phone waiting for someone to text. Is she going to text or should I text? Is he going to call? Should I call? What should I do? What should I do? What do you reckon I should do? I don't know. You should do. And you wait and you wait and you wait. Ruth would make a great rom-com. She has been holding on to what he said for three months. Will it come true? Is this thing going to happen? 
Is he the one who will redeem us? For three months she's been waiting, hoping and trusting. And the amazing thing is that all during this time of three months, well, Boaz has been thinking about Ruth as well. It's just that he thought she was out of his league. Verse 10, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than which you showed early. You have not run run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. All this time, Boaz has been working and he's had one woman on his mind. Nah, no, not me. Now she's going to run off after that younger guy. He's got that apartment. He's got that share portfolio. He's got a PhD. Who am I? I just, I'm just a farmer. I'm out of her league. But now that he knows how she feels, he will do everything he can to make this happen. Boaz is going to honour the plan. That crazy, inappropriate, risky plan, Boaz is going to honour that plan. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? Everything is going great. Ruth knows how Boaz feels. Boaz knows how Ruth feels. They're on the verge of making this thing happen. And then it seems Boaz goes and ruins the plan. I mean, he he goes and brings God into it. What a great way to ruin a plan, you know? Guy, girl, guy meets girl. Blah, blah. Oh, now he brings God into it. Oh, it says verse 12. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. I read that sentence, I go, I don't care about this other guy. I want Boaz. I want Boaz to marry Ruth. I don't want this guy. And so it crosses my why didn't he keep silent? Why didn't Boaz say, hey, yeah, yeah, just you and me, let's run off and do this thing. Boaz could have said, hey, let's just follow our hearts. But in a time where God's people are doing as they see fit, Boaz is faithful. Boaz knows, hey, no, I'm not next in line. This is, the, this is the system God has set up long ago. Who am I to say it is wrong? I'm going to trust God's word. And if that means that this other guy is first, well, I'm going to honour God by trusting his word. He does not go against what God says. He is willing to trust and obey. It's as if Boaz is saying here to Ruth, not my will, but God's be done. And my friends, that is an incredible example for us, isn't it? To entrust our hearts to God. You know, how we feel. I trust you with how I feel. To not go beyond God's word, to trust and obey. And to trust that God has our best at heart. God, this is how I feel. My heart is doing flip-flops. My, heart, my head's saying this. I'm just going to hand it all over to you. Not my will, but yours be done. Is it a great example for us? Now, at this point, after hearing Boaz say that, hey, listen, there's another guy, I'm going to guess that Ruth is feeling a little shattered. And to put her at ease, Boaz reassures her. Verse 15. Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. That's the Old Testament equivalent of a rose from the bachelor. (laughs) Ruth, will you accept these six measures of barley? (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. But it's this gift for her and for Naomi that he means business, that he means, no, no, no. I really, really, really love you. And I really want to redeem, bring you and Naomi into my family to care for you, provide for you, take care of you. And here is my gift to you. And so the question is, what will happen next? How will the story unfold? Well, the story will be resolved in one way or another in chapter 4 or in real time, the very next day. 
Verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So I'm guessing Boaz is, hasn't gone back to bed and he's just been thinking, just awake, can't sleep. How can he go to sleep? Is this going to happen? I've got to trust God with how I feel and the situation that is about to unfold today. I'm about to walk into this situation, take a big, deep breath and trust God. Will he marry the woman of his dreams? Will Ruth have to settle for the other guy? And if that happens, does that mean they both end up growing old and bitter? Apart and God, you did this to me. You know, will Ruth be like Naomi at the beginning of Ruth? Call me Mara, because the Lord has made me bitter. I couldn't marry him. It's the Lord who has made me bitter. And so this story that has taken 10 years, three months, will be resolved on that day. But my friends, time is not the issue. Trust is and always has been. Now, again, as readers, we know how the story finishes. I mean, the subheading in my Bible of chapter 4 says, Boaz marries Ruth. It's almost like I don't have to read the chapter because, you know, the subheading spells it out for us. So we know how the story finishes out, but they don't. And so they wait, they hope, and they trust. And that's what we're called to do today as well. And when you look at the characters in the Bible, that's what they've become famous and known for, waiting, hoping, and trusting. Abraham and Sarah, David, Hannah, Mary and Joseph. We wait, we hope, and we trust. And we come to Jesus because even he trusted as well. When the devil tempted him in the desert, whom did he trust? What did he trust? God's word. Jesus didn't go beyond God's word, so I'm going to trust God and his word. When the crowds wanted Jesus to be king, you're the man. He withdrew because he trusted that's not God's plan for my life. This is. And in the garden, what did he pray? Not my will, but yours be done. And on the cross, what did he say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Right until the end, Jesus did that little thing called trust. And what else did Jesus do on the cross? Well, he stretched out his arms for us, showing how deep and how wide God's love for us is. And if your faith is in him, God has spread his wings around you. We can be tempted to think God's wings are at times, are oh, they like a hummingbird's? They're just really tiny. God's wings aren't big enough for me. You know, an albatross? Gee, they've got big wings. Do you know what else a bird has big wings? A bin chicken. You know, your ibis. You look at those birds and you go, ugh. Have you ever seen one fly? They do fly, trust me. And they have got big, wide wings. Dare I say, the next time you see one of those birds and you see their wings, be reminded of how big and how wide God's wings are for you all. God's wings aren't tiny. They are wide. And, of course, God raised Jesus from the dead. So our security is wrapped up in him. You know, our inheritance is not on earth or in earthly things. It is kept in heaven. It is shielded. It is wrapped up in God. And until that day, Jesus is with us always. And if I want to echo, can I echo what John said earlier? God puts people in different places. And we wait to see what happens. God has put you and I at different places, different times. 
and we wait, hope, and we trust in those places. Because some days are tougher than others. We are Ruth chapter 3 people. We know how this world will turn out. So we make plans and we trust God. We make plans and we wait to see what God has planned. It can be scary. It can be disappointing. It can be frustrating and tiring. And we may get hurt. But our assurance comes from knowing Jesus, that he is our redeemer. And he has brought us into God's family. God has raised him from the dead so that our security is wrapped up in him. I can't think of anyone better. And so let us be like Ruth, Naomi and Boaz. Let us wait and hope and do that little thing called trust. And let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the story of Ruth. Help us to make plans just as they did. At times our plans may seem crazy or it just won't work. We're not quite sure of the outcome. But we make plans and we trust you with them. We trust today with you. Help us not to, not to worry too much about tomorrow. It's just today. Help us to commit all the things that we've got to do today into your big hands, into your wide wings. Thank you that you uh, have brought us in through Jesus. And thank you for his example of trust, of trusting you, running the race, and seeing the glory ahead of him. And that is the same glory that awaits us. And so help us to persevere look after each other, see how each other is going during this crazy, crazy season. We pray that you will lead us out with a faith that is stronger than when it first began. So help us to know that our security is wrapped up in Christ. Help us to know that he is with us always. And help us to commit our plans uh, into your hands our hearts, our minds. Help us to trust and obey your word. Help us to wait, hope, and trust in the Lord Jesus. We ask all these things in his awesome name. Amen. All right, now this... Q&A time, uh, and Nelson will upload if there's any questions on the Padlet or on the Zoom chat. While he's doing that, uh, um, is that the first question? Hey? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Would you like to come up? <laughs> Hi. Yeah. First question uh, someone's put up there is what's the significance of uncovering the feet? <laughs> uh, I think, oh, I know in some cultures feet is very taboo, but I think it's just as simple as it's a way to wake him up <laughs> because you feel cold on your feet and it's like, oh, like that happens to us when you're lying in bed and your feet get cold. I think it's meant to wake him up. I think it's as simple as that. And it, boy, does it wake him up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, next question is, how do you know you're making plans in line with what God's want? Or does it not matter because God will change it? Uh, let me answer the second bit first. Uh, how do you know God won't honour it? Um, see, that's, so we make plans uh, in line... Let me, uh, if the plan is not illegal or immoral, <laughs> it's in line with God's will. A lot of people ask me, I'm trying to work out what God's will for my life is. And I say, I'm pretty sure the Bible just says, be holy. And a lot of people answer that by saying, yeah, 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 I know that. I'm trying to work out what uni to go or what career. And I'm like, 
now that's just your job. <laughs> and I'm like, as long as your job or career or course or whatever isn't illegal or immoral, God will honor it. Oh, I want to be, I want to do this course. That's great. Oh, I want to do this job. That's great. I want to go over here. That's great. These are all planned. Uh, dare I say, I don't think God is that specific about our plans. Uh, I know we try to, we uh, can get into a trap of thinking, oh, I've got to, you know, everything I do, is it within, is this God's plan? Um, I think we just live life and just do things and God works through those things. And we pray and say, hey, God, you know, I, I'm thinking about joining this group or, God, I want to get out in my neighbourhood more or, God, I want to connect with a, 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 a relative or a friend. I want to do this. And God says, yeah, that's cool, all those things. God's like, oh, no, no, I'm only interested in mission. Unless you're a missionary, everything else is not part of my will. Now, God's very broad, uh, just calls us to live for him uh, wherever we are at. And wherever we are at, we make plans and we just see how they work out. And, yeah, sometimes your plans, God does the absolute opposite. And then you look back and go, oh, actually, that was the best thing about it. Or sometimes God, like you, God honours the plan that you make. So don't think like the second half of that, oh, God's going to change it, so therefore I shouldn't bother. No, bother. Make the plan and see what God does with it. Um, so, for example, for me, like we've got new neighbours across the road. They've just moved in, a husband and wife, two tiny little girls, and I've got to make a plan to say hello to them. Because in Sydney, everyone just you know, pulls into their garages and just does the wave. That's not good enough for me. And so I've got to make a plan. If I see him out the window, I've got to go over and say hello. And God will honour that. Sometimes he hasn't got time to talk because he's rushed. That's fine. So make, make your plans and trust God with them. They might tank. Oh, well, what's wrong with a plan that tanks? Start another one. See where it goes. Okay. Okay. I hope that answers the questions. Um, next question is, what do you think are common ways in which um, we can trust God uh, more with our finances? Um, I grew up in a family that was very stingy. My mum and dad <laughs> just, we never spent money on anything. Never got, you know, gifts or funky clothes. We never went on holidays. Because um, my mum and dad grew up in World War II, poverty, came to Australia, had nothing, and so they were just money was guarded. And I I understand that, but I'm trying not to be stingy, and I try to just give. And God, the, the Bible says a lot more about money than sex but we seem to be more worried about one than the other. <laughs> Give. It's not the dollar amount. It's the heart. It's what you're letting go. And it's amazing how God does look after you. If God's people are doing what God calls them to do, God's people will look after God's people who don't have a lot of money. And it is kind of sad when I see people who are poorer than me way more generously financially than me and I'm like what am I doing so I try to just give and if that means me suffering oh well you know um, like I'm the kind of person that if I'm walking down Church Street Mall at Parramatta and there's people with cardboard signs I just go take my money and a lot of people go what are you doing are you going to use it on drugs and stuff and I'm like well that's all I use it on Coffee, <laughs> drinks. I'm just giving. That's between them and God. What's between me and God is to be generous with our finances. And again, it's amazing. Buying a lunch for a homeless person is an amazing experience. It's also an amazing experience for the people around you. So I want to model to my kids generosity. And then it's amazing when, I get, when one of my girls says, hey, Dad, we need to go get her lunch in the city. And I'm like, oh, parenting win there. You know? <laughs> but when, like, when she says that, I'm like, 
well, hang on, a 14-year-old girl has done that. She's entrusting my finances. To <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully that'll put her in good stead. Yeah. And, like, as a church, like, when you talk about budgets, our AGM's coming up next, I think, two weeks' time. Yeah. And it's all it's about the money, right. oh, COVID, what are we going to do for 21? You just make plans and you trust God with them. And I know that, and don't get me wrong, that does sound like a very vague answer, Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous. But I'm pretty sure that's what the Bible says. Make plans, trust God, give, and trust God with your giving. Don't worry about how much. Give, trust God. Okay. Uh, next one is uh, just uh, thank you. Yeah, you can hold on that one for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, uh, Pastor Costa, oh, for, no, the, for the you, sermon uh, and a great <laughs> message. Thank you. Uh, All right, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, we've got seems to have another one. Uh, what are some ways to show non-Christian our trust in God's plan, and how do you explain that trust? Yeah, that's a great uh, question, Mr. and Mrs. Anonymous. Um, well, firstly, tell your own story. Tell how God has worked in your life. Dare I say that's probably the first port of call is you want to say, hey, listen, uh, this is how God is at work in my life. This is how I trust God. Um, I, when I pray, I'm not praying to nothing. I'm praying to the God who listens. Uh, I've got the Bible. I've got God's word that I can turn to. I've got God at work in my brothers and sisters' lives as well. You know, that's why I'm part of a church, because we look after each other, we take care of each other. And so you show non-Christians the trust in your own life. And you fess up and you go, I get it wrong all the time. But God is faithful. I, you know, I, there are days where I find it really hard to trust. And that kind of openness for non-Christians really matters, because it's what helped make me become a Christian, just hearing Christians talk to me about Christ and hearing about God working in their life, I was like, oh. And this is a guy who grew up in a church, who went to church since zero for decades. And, but to hear people talk about God real, not just in you know, religious stuff, that made a huge impact on me. So tell your own story about how God is at work in your life. Share your doubts, share your fears, your worries. And just be, tell your own story. And that's how you explain that trust. And again, uh, faith isn't something that we can put in a sentence, tied up in a bow. Faith isn't maths. You know, one plus one is two. Or faith is this plus this is that. There's a degree of faith that we can't explain. And as Christians, we kind of freak out over that. Oh, I've got to explain everything. Oh, I'm trying to evangelize. I've got, to, I've got to come up with every answer to every question. Otherwise, I'm not being a good Christian. Yeah. At the end of the day, you just say, hey, listen, uh, my faith is in the God who has revealed himself in Jesus, and I know where I'm going. doesn't mean I've got all the answers, but it's not my job to have all the answers. It's God's job to have all the answers. And I hope and pray one day that you would come to know the Jesus that I know. That's how you explain trust. Okay. Oh, this, this is a tough question. <laughs> I knew I, mean, I should I have left earlier. Early. I should have left earlier. <laughs> is it wrong? No, it's not. Well, okay. All right. I have mother-in-laws. Okay. Yeah. No. You want to honour your family members. That's true. Uh, you hope that where your, you know, your parents, your in-laws, your aunties and uncles, you hope that they're coming from a place where they want what is best for you, that in their heart is what is best for you. So it's both. You've got to make sure both are coming from a place that is honouring God and that is not easy because... Um, Sometimes our hearts are being led astray. And, some, and so therefore, yes, you should agree with your mother-in-law or brother or sister or whatever because they're trying to get you on track. Um, but there are times where there is going to be that conflict. And I've seen that conflict work out in, you know, I'm Greek. I've seen that work out in Greek families. 
Uh, I've seen that work out in Asian families too, doing you know marriage prep and stuff like that. It's not, you want to honour, but you want to make sure that both are coming from a place of good for each other. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> oh, there we keep, the question is still coming. <laughs> Would you say this is a great question because a lot of the times when you read the Bible, people say and do things and there's no comment on it. And it's up to the reader to go, whoa, whoa hang on, whoa, whoa, is that... The, the, the writer of Ruth did not say their plan was wrong, foolish, stupid, whatever. In our eyes, it's like, whoa. But the author of Ruth is like, no, there's the plan. You make, you make sense of it. And like the flip side is, you know, if I bring up the story of David and Bathsheba, that story happens and then there's one sentence where the author goes, David did what was wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Hmm, is what David and Bathsheba did wrong? Is what David did wrong? Yeah, I'm pretty sure because it's spelled there in black and white. Ruth, Naomi's plan, there is no such commentary. It's just there. And it's us as readers to go, oh, hang on. And so that's why I talked about it's actually at its basis, God's word, you know, God's social security of the widow being brought into the man's family. Um, and it shows, you know, Ruth dressing up, putting on the perfume, that she's moving on. So on the surface, the plan is risky. But I think at its heart, you know, the mother-in-law, again, at its heart, is I want what's best for Ruth. So, yeah, from our perspective, yeah. Oh, even if I can bring up the story of Job. So Job spends the whole book just going, why, God, why, why, why? And his three friends are going, well, this is why. And then God says, hey, what Job said was right. What you guys have said is wrong. And Job would have gone, really? I called you a this and that, and I shook my fist at you, and I wished I was never born. I wished you would, you, you, the only reason why I'm alive is that you could squash me like a worm. And God says, yeah, no, that's fine, Job. But you three guys, what you said was wrong. And so God provides his own commentary. So we make plans and we trust God. And, yeah, those plans can seem crazy. Okay, uh, hopefully that's the, the last question, but uh, I, I want to bring it up to... Oh, that one, yeah, finish yeah. on a good one. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. and Mrs. Anonymous. Uh, for you guys, uh, <laughs> any questions? Oh, I think we got quite a fair bit of questions uh, answered today. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, thank you, Costa, for, for your answers. So, um, 